0: Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth. My name is Sarab Sharma, the president of American Moment, and today I'm joined by no one. Uh, Nick, uh, unfortunately, was shipped off to Siberia for thought crimes. No, and, and he's, he's fine. He's a... Uh, He's going to uh, be back on the next episode. He had a little bit of car mishap uh, in the day that we're recording today. So um, he will be back next episode. But today I have a fantastic discussion with Will Chamberlain that I'm really excited to get started here. Uh, Before we go to that episode, however, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the things that we have on AmericanMoment.org. That's our website. Please check it out. Uh, Right now, we're still very much trying to uh, gauge what people's interests are for Summit, a conference on American state If you sign up for the interest form there and you fill out some of the information, it's going to be integral to helping us design that conference in the fall and making sure that it's the best that it can be. you know, COVID lockdowns are starting to lift and we're going to have the opportunity to have one of the first major gatherings for people who think like us on the right uh, that the country has had since those lockdowns and really since uh, President Trump left office as well. So please check out Summit. Please check out everything else we have on AmericanMoment.org. That includes AmCannon, other episodes of this podcast, and all of our social media accounts. Um, this podcast is also a video podcast. If you're a purely audio listener, we highly recommend you check out the YouTube channel, that's American Moment, just like it is on any other platform. Uh, We put in a lot of work on making this a good production. So if you want something to be playing in the background while you're getting work done on your computer or want to see what all of us and our our lovely guests look like, we highly recommend you check it out there. Uh, And so without further ado, we'll go to our guest, who today is Will Chamberlain. Uh, We've been wanting to have Will on since we started the podcast. He is one of the most entrepreneurial voices on big tech that the right has. He was beating the drum back in 2016 and 17 about how big a problem it was that we have corporate censorship from some of the biggest corporations that the world has ever seen. And I put a lot of credibility in people who are early on these issues. It's very easy to jump on a bandwagon, uh, but it's very hard to be a lone voice out there, uh, especially if you don't have a ton of institutional backing, uh, because these are new ideas. And so Will is one of those people, and he's been part of actually spinning up institutions that do give him backing. Uh, A couple of years ago, he purchased Human Events, which was a legacy brand of one of the most prestigious publications on the right for decades. And he's really spun it up into a tour de force and it's growing every day. And so he is the Owner and editor in chief over there at Human Events. And he's also the senior counsel to the Internet Accountability Project, which was founded in part by one of our other guests and board members, Rachel Bovard. They're one of the best groups, really being aggressive on the issue of big tech and making sure that the policy answers we have and sort of the rapid response we need on some of these big tech encroachments on liberty and freedom are addressed head on. Um, other than that, you know, he was a lawyer before uh, he got involved in politics and he was also an attorney at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He's whip smart. Apparently, I found out today that he was a poker player for a little bit. Uh, He dropped out of college in order to do that and eventually wised up and realized he had to go back. So uh, Will's brilliant. We had a fantastic wide ranging discussion on everything big tech, his background, uh, the 2024 election, uh, and how conservatives really need to get comfortable with government power if they're going to fight some of the woke corporations that are dominating more and more of American life. We hope you enjoy the episode. And now we'll go to Will Chamberlain. thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we always like to start with trying to get an idea as to what people's story is. And as a uh, lawyer who does not practice the law, we especially love uh, these cautionary tales for anyone considering the you know, horrific future that is law school. So tell us how you kind of got involved in politics, Will. Oh, well, okay. So let's see. Uh, I was
1: played poker for a living briefly after dropping out of GW um, back when I was 18. Then I found my way into back into college because I realized like you, I was I hit a point where I was making enough money to live, but I didn't see a way to get like the promotion. Like I, I wasn't making enough money to justify not going to college at nineteen, so or at twenty one rather. So I went back to college at University of the Pacific, Stockton, California, to do college debate. I was a very um, successful college parliamentary debater, uh, and then coach debate for another couple of years after graduating. And I noticed that the other people I had competed against who had done similarly well were getting into Harvard and and. You, you know, all the best law schools in the country, I'm like, oh, I should I should take the LSAT did really well. Um, and so even with kind of mediocre college grades, got into Georgetown and then from uh, then Georgetown law. And then so after it did, did very well, at Georgetown uh, got a job. at Quinn Emanuel a litigation firm in L.A. Hated it <laughs> left after six months. I don't think I've ever heard from anyone who actually likes
0: working at a big law firm.
1: Um, I mean, there's there's they're terrible for a few reasons. Um, it's very hard at the end of the day to avoid feeling one of two things, either tremendous guilt or tremendous exhaustion. So the guilt comes when you don't bill enough hours (laughs) and you know that you have this billable requirement that you didn't meet, um, which is effectively, you need to be billing roughly 40 hours a week, which means you need to be working about 60 because you can't bill every minute you're working, um, ethically. So, or you've actually worked the amount you needed to, and then doing, you know, 10 to 12 hours of serious intellectual work is exhausting. So it's one of the two, if you either feel guilty or exhausted or both. Um, and that, and then there's also a, just a mundaneness to a lot of the early work. And and then you look around at the people who are the partners and, I, and they're all divorced and they all they don't have their family lives in order. And and I'm like, this is not, that's the prize at the end of the tournament. I think Glenn Reynolds something said something like that too. Like, you know, the, the prize wasn't appealing. So why should I continue to grind through all the work to get to this prize that looks you know, very, very unsatisfactory.
0: Yeah. And so you uh, were unsatisfied with working at the law firm. And so you decided to get out and you went into politics, A, why? And B, where'd you end up going? So, I mean, I I got a a nonprofit legal
1: job at Conservative Enterprise Institute doing some class action work uh, that which I enjoyed, but I was ultimately a little bored with. And I, I wanted to get into politics after Trump won because I felt like, you know, that's where my politics were. I had voted for him. And there was room for someone. You were an L.A. lawyer who voted for Trump? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one of the, like, one. Yeah, right. Like, I, you know, it's hard to talk about with the people at the law firm. Yeah. Um, and, and it was just a, a realization that, you know, I, I figured I could do something out here in pro-Trump politics. I had no idea what it would be, but I'm like, look, I am I went to Georgetown Law. I, you know, I have this legal resume. I've got to be useful somehow. Um, and then eventually, you know, what I started doing was uh, actually met. Mike Cernovich, and then through him got hooked into some people he knew out here in DC and then started organizing like cocktail hours for Trump supporters back in 2017, called MAGA meetups. Um, And that was how I started meeting people and getting to know people. And then I also started doing periscopes and playing around and and getting some traction there. And eventually I didn't like doing the cocktail hour thing because I'm a pretty introverted person (laughs) and uh, kind of switched, figured out a way to switch into doing politics. and, And then met Raheem Kassam and the opportunity to buy human events presented itself. So that's that's how I bought human events.
0: Yeah, the first uh, CPAC that I went to was, I think, the when you announced the uh, mm-hmm. the Human Events uh, purchase, and I, I remember very distinctly like walking through the lobby at the Gaylord Hotel where it's yeah. hosted, and like seeing you guys like sitting there like plotting, and I was like, "Interesting,
1: what's yeah. going on here?" <laughs> no, I mean it was a lot of fun. I mean, ultimately, you know, the partnership between Raheem and I didn't work out. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard for people to work together, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm still very happy with what we've done with human events. Um, and in terms of, I think, you know, the aesthetic of the site, you know, there was a period when we started, we realized that every single conservative website was just ugly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, there; they, they were all terrible and yeah. American greatness and daily Caller and all of them. And, and we showed up and we were like beautiful aesthetics, like beautiful pieces. And all of a sudden they, they're all like, Hey, we need to up our game. And so they have, and I'm, I'm happy about that.
0: Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the background of human events. Like, what is it? I mean, uh, you know, it has a history to it right. it's not a brand yeah. that you that came out of nowhere
1: no so it's i mean it was the oldest it's the oldest conservative magazine in the country i think it was started in the 1940s um i forget the exact date it was ronald reagan's favorite magazine uh my dad had a whole bunch of you know my grandfather had a whole bunch of human events that he found and my dad found them when they were going through the estate uh it, you know it's a very very old brand just sort of the harder right version compared to national review yeah I mean, in the early so days. So, you're saying National Review did not invent conservative magazines? No, no, they didn't. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they, they fell on hard times. And I think by 2013, they were online only. And by 2015, they were effectively defunct. Mm-hmm. So, Salem bought them, but they were just sitting there. And eventually, I think the opportunity to buy it from Salem presented itself. And Raheem and I, you know, Raheem had run Breitbart London. So, we saw, you know, I, we saw a way to partner up and him have him be EIC and me sort of publisher. Uh, and, you know, eventually, though, like Raheem, you know, I split up very quickly and then uh, and then I ended up taking on EICN publisher roles. Um, and we've actually we've brought in now uh, Jeff Webb, who is the CEO of our, who is the former CEO of R.C. Brands, the cheerleading Goliath, uh, cheerleading apparel Goliath. And he's now running,
0: a, you know, the new news division that we're doing while I'm still kind of running the opinion side what do you see lacking in sort of the existing right of center media <sighs> ecosystem that you wanted to fill with human events?
1: I mean, I thought there was a lack of, you know, I, I, I there wasn't an equivalent to national review for the populist nationalists. I thought, mm-hmm. um, in terms of polish, in terms of the writing quality, um, American greatness was, uh, I, I think American greatness and federalist are really good, but they weren't quite what I wanted, especially when it came to stuff like te- big tech and, um, and some of the issues that I really cared about. And I think, uh, you know, that's what we really bring to it. I think if you read our pieces, you'll notice the writing and editing quality, especially on the opinion side is really, really good. Um, that's cause I have this absolutely stellar managing editor who is pseudonymous cause she doesn't want to, you know, have her, you know, be publicly affiliated <laughs> or be publicly, you know, political. Yeah. But she's just outstanding, and so yeah. you know we we still bring I think, and, and then you got Ian Chong who does every piece of bespoke art for our opinion pieces.
0: No, that's that's the thing that I remember really standing out to me was how great the art looked. Yeah. Um, and I know that it's it's something that Jake, uh, our, our our chief creative officer, has taken some inspiration from, like doing our features and stuff. Like he wants to do more of that because they're just i mean it's funny I, I i interned at the daily caller a couple of years ago and when you're churning out copy you realize that like everyone's using the same four thumbnails for a given topic it's like yeah. oh there's like there's that picture of google's headquarters and like three articles a week will come out using that exact same one and it's just it ends up looking like a like a mash at a certain point so if you have unique art it really distinguishes yeah. itself. yeah no and, and i really
1: like doing that so we were thinking you know unique art really high quality pieces and you know we'll just build the brand that way and and now we're sort of expanding i think ultimately you know we're going to start there's you know we're, we're going to get heavily into podcasts and we're, we're building out the news division um you know with jeff behind us there's there's a lot more resources coming our way so I, i'm i'm very excited about the future of human events in terms of you know bringing uh you know really
0: expanding it and bringing you know kind of making more of an impact What how do you think that media has changed? I mean, you know, it, Human Events started as a magazine. That yeah. was the cutting edge format at the time. Um, you know, a, an idea would be to just do that again, but it doesn't seem like that's the plan. Like you you are trying to find where the like next frontiers in media are. Wh- wh- what do you ha- how do you approach that in terms of format question in terms of a medium question? Well, so I mean, I think about
1: how I consume media. And I mean, this was also a big insight where how do I consume media? Well, I consume it via Twitter, right? And I think most serious, you know, people in media also yeah. consume their media via Twitter. You yeah. you see a link that looks interesting, you click into it, you click back into Twitter after you're done. Okay, so it's- And sometimes like, you just
0: retweet it. You don't even click it. <laughs> sometimes you just
1: retweet and you don't even click it. But um, that notion meant that I, I didn't think, especially early on, that, the, that there was a huge value in publishing a ton of content if it wasn't good, right? And that you would do a lot better if you focused, you went for quality over quantity, and then really try to push out a lot, push out, you know, really amplify the stuff that you were doing. Um, and I still think that strategy was the right strategy. Um, and it also was a much more, you know, efficient strategy. Like even now, you know, the opinion side is three people. And even with Jeff and and his his guy Brent coming in, you know, we have maybe four employees total or something um, because, you know, I'm not actually sure how they work on the other side of the operation, but <laughs> something in that ballpark. Yeah. And, Because we've been so efficient, we can sit around and think, okay, like, what do we want to do? Where do we have? Where do we want to expand rather than being like, we have this massive overhead that we need to somehow, you know, generate ad revenue and
0: and cover. So you've, you know, running a publication that presumably uh, needs to generate profit, you've probably experienced firsthand what. Uh, big tech does to conservative media. Yeah. Uh, and, and you mentioned that as one of the things that precipitated your desire to create it. And, and this is really something that you've made a name for yourself on with your right. role at IAP. And then just in general commentary, w- when did you realize that big tech was a problem?
1: <laughs> I mean, it was, it was definitely, uh, it was early. I think it was 2017. Uh, I realized it when Miley was banned. Yeah. Um, and, You know, there was there was this period where Milo was publicly saying like it's the best thing that's ever happened to me and I'll I'll be just fine. And it's like, no, it clearly was not the best thing that ever. I mean, he's he's conceded that now. Um, But the realization that okay, you know, a company can on a whim, without really having a rational explanation or any process to protect you, can just take away your social media platform from you. And I mean, I I think of my social media platform as my one of my most valuable assets that I that I own, but it's can be taken away for any reason or no reason at all by a tech company and that felt wrong that felt immoral um especially you know how do you be how do you start in journalism without a twitter account now i mean you can be established and you don't need one you can be george will and write the same op-ed every day for usa today or whatever and be fine but if you're just a new coming into the business you have to be able to use twitter yeah and so that means twitter decides who's a journalist and who's not if they want to and they
0: do want to um, that's why you find like all of these verified accounts with like 33 followers. Cause it's like, you know, these established media companies have a direct line and they recognize that that is an engine of prestige. Right. And so even though the founders did not envision like the class of persons called journalists, we've it kind of found our way back at that with the right. blue check it's like effectively a bizarre form of professional credentialing yeah uh, except, occupational licensing yeah <laughs> except
1: except totally on a whim no no actual learning yeah. needed just you know membership in one of the existing guilds yeah uh and that you know that struck me as very unfair uh it struck me that you know, is obvious, like, okay, well, they've started here. Well, then why won't they want to use that power to do other things? These, the reason they're doing this is because there's lefties at Twitter who bought into the bizarre rationalization. That's like, oh, he's harassing Leslie Jones. Like, well, he wasn't, I mean, he was just arguing with her on Twitter. She was giving as good. And so I knew then it's like, there's no real due process here. They're arbitrary. Clearly this is wrong. And I'm a lawyer. I sit and think, okay, well, this should probably be unlawful like this is an unlawful. They're discriminating on the basis of politics. This is unlawful. How do we fix that? Well, we write a law
0: that makes this particular kind of discrimination illegal. And so, what was the original proposal that made the most sense to you? I, I, I remember distinctly. I think it would have been circa 2017, 18. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz starting to talk about Section 230 and the publisher platform distinction. What to you was was the squeaky wheel at the time uh, in terms of the law that could be uh, you know addressed and. And is that still the solution that you think is the best? So, you know, I, I, from the beginning, you know, I'm okay with 230
1: reform, but I always thought, you know, we've been overly focused on it because 230 was a statute written to solve a different problem, right? Solving the sort of moderator's dilemma. If, If I do any sort of moderation, like if I delete porn then am I liable for all the third-party users? Like the, the sort of dilemma that the courts had created was if you do nothing, you can't be sued for defamation. But if you do anything to remove any content, no matter how disgusting, you are on the hook for defamation liability. Mm-hmm. And so Congress in their wisdom was like, okay, that's stupid. We're going to immunize you from all liability, so you can get rid of you know porn uh, on your website. Um, but that's a different problem from censorship and discrimination. Uh, and from the beginning, I was like, we need a law that, protects people's right to use Twitter and Facebook. Because if you think about it, you know, what is why why are we focused on 230? Well, they're saying, well, you know, if if they're just taking people off of Twitter and controlling what content should be out there, then they should be liable when somebody defames someone on their platform. I'm like, great, but what about the victim of censorship? Like some other person being able to sue Twitter and Facebook for defamation does not solve, does not redress the harm of the person who's been censored. Mm-hmm. Like they're the ones who need protection. And I mean the the analogy is what happens when you have a first amendment case like it when when some odious figure wants to speak on a university campus and the university campus tries to block them there's not some random circum you know circumvention where you have some other person suing the university that person sues the university walks into court gets an injunction and is able to speak again in civil rights law if there's any sort of racial discrimination you know you walk into court you get an injunction the racial discrimination is stopped by court order so what we needed was okay let's write a law that says if you're silenced if you're censored for lawful speech or whatever category you know however we want to structure it you can walk into court get a court order and your attorney's fees paid for
0: and force facebook and twitter to restore your account and restore your content it seems to me that the reason so much of the right has has focused on section 230 is partially because conservatives aren't used to the idea of legislating it's like oh that existing thing we'll just tweak that god forbid we actually think about something original right yeah like
1: there's this weird fear of writing a new law um and it's it's i guess maybe it's the libertarian impulse where the libertarians are like everything that exists before in terms of the law except for the drug laws are is fine (laughs) uh but no new laws can be made and all the all the laws already written are infinitely wise uh and and rather than say okay but this is a new problem let's write legislation to target it you know i don't you know, antitrust is another example. I'm perfectly fine using antitrust laws. So is IAP. Like, I, I I like them. And I think, you know, clearly there's some monopoly issues with Google and Facebook and Twitter and whatever, but that, you know, it's an indirect way of solving the censorship problem. Antitrust was, they were, it was not, they weren't thinking about like what happens if, you know, the newspaper censor people when they wrote the antitrust laws, they were thinking what happens when John Rockefeller monopolizes the oil industry. Yeah. Um, so Let's write a new law to solve the problem we want to, rather than having to kind of do legalese to stretch yeah. an old law to fit yeah. a new problem.
0: No, that, that's such a good point. And it's something that, that I've spent a lot of time thinking about lately. You know, yeah, there is probably some sectors where antitrust is important, but I, I've just gotten to the point where I'm saying antitrust is a cope. Like, that, yeah. that's what it seems like. It is, it is people being duplicitous about what they actually want. They want the censorship to stop, but they mm-hmm. don't... Conservatives do not have the moral vocabulary to advocate for new law right. yeah uh, or any changes in the regime so they're just like well we have these existing tools to bear when it's like nope, you can legislate <laughs> right we can just write a new law yeah yeah there's there's a whole constitution on how to do that <laughs> right
1: and i mean justice thomas literally just gave everybody a roadmap. like yeah. here's the various types of laws you can write that
0: yeah. you know right now i can't do anything for you but you write these laws yeah. You know, maybe we got something going. Yeah. So we're recording this at the beginning of April. And Justice Thomas just wrote, uh, was it either a concurring opinion or a dissent? Concurring opinion. Uh, in, in which he, he made a lot of libertarians very angry. Um, yeah. I saw Ari Cohn was very upset. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> very mad. And, uh, and so why don't you explain a little bit about what he said, why it's important, and, and how it is a roadmap moving forward. So, I mean,
1: the, understand the overarching case was uh, this case about tr- Trump being able to block people on Twitter. Right. And, and the, I think the NYU and some legal, count, you know, some legal clinic there had sued him and saying, you're not allowed to block people on Twitter because it's a public forum. And the Supreme Court ultimately was just dismissing the case as moot because Trump's not on Twitter anymore. So mm-hmm. who cares who he blocked? Um, and, and it's in that spirit that, you know, Thomas saw the opportunity to write a lot about what he thought about censorship. Not that it was, you know, really germane to the case at hand, but, you know, he he was thinking about, you know, how do I and he was finding funny ways to make it relevant. You know, he's like, so the reason one of the things we have to think about is that this the these Twitter accounts are not government forums because they're not clearly they're not in full control of the forum. Like if, if Donald Trump is not in full control of his Twitter account, Twitter is. Yeah. Uh, and so if you actually wanted to create, make these public government forums where you had a first amendment right to speak, then the way to do that would be to restrain the right of Twitter to exclude people. Then it would be actually <laughs> a way for government to control. And here's the ways you could make it. You could say it's a common carrier. You could say it's a public accommodation. Um, and he, he had some very interesting arguments also, you know, cause we have now the push is, since we don't have control of government is to put in place these protections at the state level, like a state saying. Twitter cannot discriminate against Texas citizens like the one that's going in Texas. And Thomas made a very interesting argument that, uh, you know, there's some question about whether Texas's law conflicts with federal law, Section 230, that says, you know, F- Section 230 says you can't sue the tech companies for good faith moderation. And Texas says, yeah, you can sue. We were giving a private right of action to Texas, Texas residents. Um, and Thomas was saying, actually, you know, if the federal law is overriding the state law and the state law is giving for speech rights, then the federal law violates the First Amendment. Um, so his basic argument is Section 230 is applied to overriding state level, you know, speech protections would be would be
0: a First Amendment violation. So he blew open the Overton window on this because it seems like I I remember when uh, you wrote you you signed on to something I think called Tech New Deal uh, at Mm -hmm. Claremont that published a couple years ago. And the classic argument that was made against kind of your crew was that, oh, who are these, you know, rowdy Twitter users? They're not serious people. Uh, We don't have to take any of the arguments they're making seriously. And now Supreme Court Justice, who? has a lot of cachet on the right even amongst libertarians is blowing open the overton window on this yeah conversation. no
1: it it just feels i mean it's such a vindication you know i mean obviously there's a long way to actually making that law and getting it upheld in the courts but it's a huge vindication because i mean people told me i was crazy and i mean i i heard so many people but they're a private company they can do what we want that's not conservative what you're saying and and now i mean it's funny i don't even feel like i need to argue it anymore because you know events have vindicated me like all the yeah. the nasty you know it turns out the slope was very slippery indeed <laughs> you know from milanopolis <laughs> to the president of the united states and uh, everybody's basically on the same page now, and now it's a very minority fringe position to be against tech regulation on the right. Mm-hmm. Um, that the the bulk of
0: the right wants to see these companies constrained. It seems like now the concern is, uh, you know, people who who claim to have have seen the light, advocating half measures that are not really yeah. going. To, I mean, like I, I I saw an unnamed conservative institution a couple, uh, you know, maybe it was a couple months ago now, maybe a couple weeks. You were like, you know we think it's time for section 230 reform i'm like the conversation has moved past this like now it's you know like we are in entirely uncharted waters even if that was your position three years ago it's clearly not enough now
1: right Um, no i mean and that's just again that's the point i mean if you you tweak section 230 you're trying to accomplish indirectly what you can accomplish directly via new laws mm -hmm. um and again i mean like let's start there is a victim of censorship, who's having their livelihood, I mean, some very important asset of theirs just taken from them on a whim, redress that person's harm. That's what law is for. We, we, you know, we, we create private rights of action all the time. We were going to do that in South Dakota on the transgender legislation, right? The idea that some, a wronged athlete who's forced to compete, you know, in, in women's sports against biological males should have a right of action to sue. And we, this is not an, a hard concept to understand. And yet, uh, there's there's still a lot of conservatives who just want to you know tweak around the edges and still fit into like a libertarian construct of, oh, well, since Section 230 is a government granted immunity. We can mess with that, but we can't create a new right for citizens.
0: Right. It, it, I, the language that I've seen getting paraded around is that it's a special protection. It's a special interest. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. But it's just it, it does seem to be missing the point. And it's right. like, like for me, it's just, it's the same problem with. Uh, you know, the the argument for checks or or more substantive relief during COVID being because the lockdowns were government takings like, yeah, okay, but like, my, my, my approach is not that and that approach will like constrain uh, you on policy in a way that I, I don't want the right to be. Constrained. Right. I agree. And I mean, I've, i'm tempted by i've made that argument too just to get you know some of the
1: i'm willing to make those arguments to sort of get libertarians to realize like hey you know like let's come over to the right side of the argument but at the end yeah i I mean i think ultimately using takings alone as the rationale is not why we want to give stimulus it's not i mean although i mean in a way it is a massive government taking from everybody who does business uh so anyway
0: so where, where does this, I mean, you spend enough time in DC now that you probably have a sense of, of what some of these like pathologies on the right are. What, what is, where does this crisis of imagination stem from the inability to legislate or even think in those terms? Like, you know, section 230 appears to have been written on stone tablets by Moses at this point, And, you know, the right can't even think beyond that. Where does that broader, you know, problem come from?
1: I mean, I think it comes from, you know, 30 years of the intellectual space on the right being dominated by the Kochs. Uh, and, you know, I actually talked with Charlie Kirk about this, you know, it's, it's fascinating how, you know, you, you come up in conservative politics, even if I wasn't super involved in DC, when I was a young person, I was reading all this stuff. And you're just you, you know, you're Milton Friedman, you know, your Mises, you know, all the liber- classical liberal stuff, but they don't teach you how government works and how to use it to actually protect your people from, you know, any sort of real problem that's existing for your your base. And, uh, I think, you know, we feel there's sort of a feeling of, OK, well, now we, we need to get past that. There needs to be a new set of intellectuals who are actually saying, OK, no, here's we're actually going to protect the interests of the people who vote for us and use government to do that. Yeah. Um, and that's still conservative.
0: Yeah. Right. It's uh, I mean, obviously, it's a problem that we think about a lot at American Moment is recognizing that, you know, these libertarian institutions have dominated the personnel generation on the right for the past 20 to 30 years. And so you have All the people who know anything as people who hate government and who also like leave pretty quickly. Like they'll do 10 years around here and then they want to go off to the private sector and then we have no ability to govern and it's a big problem. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Coming into DC right after Trump got elected, what was it that you were seeing? I mean, you weren't in the White House, but presumably at Friends. You know, what what was your sort of 30,000 foot takeaway of what happened over the last four years? Oh, I mean,
1: we just got absolutely destroyed in terms of staffing the White House early on. Uh, You know, the, I mean, apparently there was a you know they didn't even remember they sub- had people submit to makeamericagreatagain.gov yeah, or great,
0: something great great
1: again.gov yeah. again. and all those resumes just got flushed down the toilet and it was just staffed with RNC people from the very beginning um, and as a result like getting these serious issues taken care of the, you know you couldn't do anything I mean I I kind of like Trump realized it too late there was a period of two years where the moment Malianopolis was banned in a pro- in a world where the Republican Party had its act together immediately there would have been legislation to be like no 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 you don't get to ban any conservative influencers yeah. sorry twitter it's a right to use it unless yeah. they break the law yeah and imagine if they had done that like imagine what the world would have looked like in 2020 yeah. if the republicans were capable of getting their act together and putting an immediate legal stop to what twitter and facebook were doing to some of the more fringy influencers
0: yeah it uh and and i think some of you know one of the weird Morton Blackwell has a law of the public policy process that I think goes something along the lines of, you know, in, in any organization, you need to have just as many people to the right of you as you do to the left of you. And if you extrapolate that concept out, the right is very skittish and incapable of defending people that are those those icky right wingers to the right of them. Yeah. And it seems like that ended up being a lot of the reason is that, you know, people didn't feel comfortable defending X, Y or Z figure that probably was distasteful. And so the president got kicked off Twitter. Right, and so the president got picked,
1: kicked off Twitter. And and I mean, there's also you know the president himself. I think that he has many strengths, but you know personnel and HR was not one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know allowed his White House to be run by people who wasn't weren't really huge fans of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I th- that was that was part of the problem. Just the lack of awareness. And I mean, by the time everybody woke up to realize, oh, this is a
0: really big problem, it was way too late. Yeah, I mean Democrats had the House. You know, we had the chance to do something about this, and we just didn't. So, big tech was obviously one of the great missed opportunities. What were some of the other ones that you thought that the Trump administration could and should have been ahead of the curve on?
1: I mean, they were very slow on declaring a national emergency to deal with the wall. I remember having big arguments about this, and you know, people saying that it couldn't be done. And it, you actually read the national emergency statute, and he has authority to do it on its own. Um, and he and signed a legislative compromise so that he couldn't do it. And I mean, it gave them the ability to stop all wall funding. It was a, it was a complete mess at the white house and they should have been much more aggressive about doing something, doing something on the wall to get that built and just get things done. Uh, I think that was one of the big missed opportunities. I think the lack of stimulus after COVID was a big missed opportunity. Maybe the biggest one was just the Trump administration deciding to be rhetorically flippant about COVID. Because it's not even anything, the administration actually did a really good job. I mean, we're all getting vaccinated. Thank you, Operation Warp Speed. Um, But, you know, I I look back, maybe that's the biggest missed opportunity because, you know, I know the conservative is a lot, pretty split on COVID, but public polling was overwhelming. 70-30, 75-25 on take the pandemic seriously. Mm -hmm. And uh, the sort, you know, the administration did that and, but Trump himself, you know, couldn't, take a consistent rhetorical line. He's trying to please everybody. And I think ultimately people got really tired of hearing him talk about the pandemic.
0: Well, also, I mean, the 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 expert class that people deferred to also be clowned itself over the last year. Like- Absolutely. And in
1: so many different ways too. Um, like I remember when I was pushing masks and Fauci and others were out there saying masks are stupid. I mean, you actually look at The really savage critique of Fauci is not that he recommended lockdowns or anything like that. The savage critique of Fauci is that he funded gain-of-function research in China um, and that he was encouraging people to go on cruises like a week before everything locked down. Uh, Bill de Blasio said you were a racist if you didn't go to a Chinatown celebration or something. I mean, we had (laughs) had the complete high ground on COVID, Mm -hmm. if you remember. I mean, the left was totally um, flipping about it uh saying that like how dare you call it the china virus remember those debates yeah. Yeah. uh just and, and being like we are open we are how dare you ban travel i mean they did all these things that now look incredibly stupid in retrospect and for some reason we just frittered away the the this massive advantage we had on what was going to obviously be the issue of the election there's a pandemic everyone's locked down everybody's scared of dying 500,000 Americans have died. Like, I think that the biggest missed opportunity as a political matter was, you know, embracing a consistent, we are just going to be tough on this. Like, we're not going to be stupid and keep businesses locked out indefinitely, but we're going to be very tough on it. And we're going to take a very serious sober tone period on COVID. So. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I've really struggled with this one because I, I share the the concerns that you have there. And, and it's very clear that if a nation acted aggressively enough, they could have been done with the pandemic by the summer. Yeah. Of last year, uh, and and we did not take that path, and and just now are we starting to emerge from that? But at the same time, look, I mean, people were promised fifteen days to slow the spread, and and that that became one hundred fifty days, and yeah, and 300 I, I, days. I, I get I get
1: that, I get all that. I mean, it it still was one of those situations where you know this is it's more about the politics at that point than anything else. Maybe we weren't capable of doing what New Zealand did or what South Korea did because we're too big a country, too rowdy, too independent, whatever you want to say. It's like okay fine. But, um, you know, we didn't, you know, I mean, there were, there were periods where Trump was saying stuff like comparing it was in March and he was comparing the number of people who died from flu to who died from COVID. And it's was like, think about that. It's, I mean, th- those were obviously silly tweets and silly things to be doing in retrospect. Uh, and I still remember it was just the same people who were everybody who said, you know, nobody's going to die from this. The pandemic will be over by April. Everybody's overreacting. It's like those people didn't check their priors at all. Yeah. Uh, it still still frustrates me because yeah. I, I remember just being like, no, read look at what happened in Italy. This is going to blow up on us. And everybody's still freaking out and being like, how dare you say that there's you know, this is actually going to be
0: a pandemic. That I think is fair is that pe- people seem very reticent to actually compare their. I mean, it, no one's actually willing to to reckon with their track record on on right Um, like yeah i mean most of the you know the most vociferous
1: fauci critics are the people who were like said you know ten thousand people would die yeah you know it's like okay
0: (laughs) yeah um but of course i mean look i I feel like the left had an opportunity in the last year to really concretize rule by experts as divined by liberal institutions as the mode of governance and they blew it because they're morons (laughs) yeah
1: no and they're they're no good uh and I mean the fact that they can't. I mean they're saying stuff like they're still wearing masks even though everybody's vaccinated. Like they're talking about, well, you know, we don't know if the vac-. like stop it. <laughs> get people vaccinated. Yeah. I mean Israel Israel had this right where they're like everybody needs to get a vaccine. If you don't get a vaccine, you're dumb like yeah. that. And all of a sudden, their their deaths have plummeted and they're yeah. in great shape. Uh, yeah. You know, and and the debates about. You know, it would give a good place for the right to be where they're like this, the massive theater, get everybody vaccinated so we can go back to business as usual and don't discourage people from getting the vaccine. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm, and, and it's the big accomplishment of the Trump administration. I mean, this is the fastest we've ever had a vaccine rollout in history. I've been reliably told that Joe Biden delivered all 100 million
0: vaccines. You know,
1: if the fact that we're, you know, getting out of this is due to the Trump administration. Every Republican should be out there taking credit uh, for how good, you know, for the vaccine development.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I I like it in the sense that, uh, like what happened over the last year, you know, all the deaths and everything, obviously, were a tragedy, but it was kind of the great modern example of what government can do if right. it is directed towards good ends. Yes. And, you know, I I can't help but think, you know, how is that a roadmap for other things that the right could be doing? And so, <laughs> right. you know, moving forward, we have a couple of years of, of the Biden slash Kamala administration, depending on who you think is in power, going into 2024, 2028. What is it that you would like the agenda for the right to look like at a broad level? And then the particulars, what are the issues that they should be focusing on?
1: Well, so, I mean, they need to focus on immigration and trade. I mean, the border is a complete catastrophe. It's proven the point that, you know, we're in the uncanny valley where we've chosen the least humane policy possible. Mm -hmm. And that's totally on Biden, unbidden, (laughs) right? Like they didn't have to choose the policy of don't, you know, have the law be strict, but only enforce it sparingly or barely enforce it because that's led to the massive human tragedy at the border where you've got you know children
0: being... we are in the least optimal scenario Yeah, the least <laughs>
1: optimal it's like open borders would be more ethical than what you're doing right now and i don't yeah. think i think open borders is very unethical but it would be better than sort of de facto open borders with de jure closed borders that's that's terrible mm. um and it's inhumane and you have you know you're you're massively incentivizing people to go into the arms of human traffickers to come over the border by the thousands with a situation we can't possibly cope with. And I mean, you, you see those, well, I mean, you see that they're massively overcrowded in all those facilities. I mean, those people are, I'm, it's terrible. It's a human tragedy. Um, and that Trump had a correct answer, which was no, enforce the border, deter people from using these human traffickers, squeeze, you know, stop that from happening and then allow people in legally. Um, And so I think back to focusing on immigration, trade as well, that's a big one. Um, But then also the the combined, like, anti-corporate wokeness, I mean, it's disgusting to watch all these corporations suddenly start shilling for Democrats. I mean, they did it before a little bit, but now, I mean, we need to be, you know, talking about excise taxes on baseball. (laughs) Um, Like, we, we just need to deter this. Yeah. Our American corporations should feel, you know, they can speak about their interests, but the moment they start speaking about partisan political debates, they just feel the weight of the federal government come down on them the next time the other party takes power.
0: Yeah. The lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, had a tweet the other day where he had uh, called up the, uh, I believe it was the American Airlines government affairs mm-hmm. person, their top government affairs person. And he, and he straight up asked them, did you read the bill, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the election integrity bill that was uh, being condemned by American Airlines? And And the person said, no, we mm-hmm. did not read the bill. What about your CEO? Did he read the bill? No. No it's it's purely narrative coming out of the right yeah no they just they bought into stacey abrams and whoever
1: else's narrative and there need to be consequences for that Mm -hmm. right this is the other thing i mean there's a reluctance on the right to really fight back and use tit for tat because that's that's how you deter this behavior um you know, the next time, obviously, the next time they need the airlines need a bailout, they should be told that oh, well, we're so sorry. Uh, <laughs> we hope you enjoy bankruptcy and that new management can effectively em- employ all the people yeah. after your entire C-suite is fired. Yeah,
0: maybe go back to Mark Elias and ask him if he'll share some right, of his, you know, Ford Foundation money with you. <laughs> I mean, it's just you know, like basically the the
1: goal of the conservative movement. I think that should be a policy goal. Should be the C-suite of any company that came out against this bill to be replaced, right? All gone, new new executives. Yeah, like you're. You know, I mean, there needs to be deterrence. There needs to be. Um, There needs to be consequences for joining a partisan political debate. If you're one of America's, if you're Coke, everybody drinks Coke. If you're baseball, stay out of politics. Like, accept to this, I mean, if you want to go advocate for your own interests, that's what I think we should be fine with. You know, I'm okay, Coke, saying like, hey, like, we need to talk to politicians and be like, well, we need this plant here, or the policy you're going to propose is going to really hurt our business and put a lot of people out of work. Fine. So the moment you're taking sides and you're just joining the democrats okay well now you're an adversary of the republican party and we should want to defund you the same way we want to defund planned parenthood
0: yeah and actually do it yeah unlike it, with planned parenthood well yeah well and that that's you know a it's like a why are you hitting yourself sort of thing these companies they always say well these policies are bad for business why are they bad for business because we won't do business in the state if you pass this policy wait a second <laughs> <laughs> right so so It's just you. Like, you're the one who has the problem here. Uh, And, you know, this was how I got involved in politics was uh, in 2017, I was working the Texas legislature and they had what was called the Women's Privacy Act up for debate there, which was uh, a transgender bathroom bill. And, you know, the entire force of, you know, all the national sports leagues and all these major corporations and and Texas is uniquely guilty of corporate solicitude. Like, please, 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 please move here as opposed to, I think, a more dignified approach that someone like Ron DeSantis in Florida take, which is if you'd like to come here, you're more than welcome to but that bill didn't end up passing and all it was was overriding municipal ordinances that mandated uh transgender bathrooms yeah. and and public public facilities would have you know men and women restrooms that was it and that was too much for corporate america and so that's how i that was my first experience in politics first major legislative fight so like i've always seen this like this is not new to me and it's kind yeah. of funny to watch everyone wake up now yeah um but I mean- I think I think we can win this one, though. I think that this is
1: they've massively overreached with this bill. And suddenly every I mean, even Mitt Romney is out there being like you've bought into false information. The most useless Republican in our in the Senate is angry about this.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned, though, like, you know, actually defund them, unlike Planned Parenthood, which we haven't. And that's the thing I worry about with this is that the Republicans are very, very bad at follow through on this stuff, Um, at least partially because most of the political capital that they can generate off of uh, being good on this stuff. Uh, happens in the front end on the like proposing the policy or saying you would propose the policy and uh, i think there's no better example of this than what just happened in georgia like mm-hmm. i remember every republican myself included on twitter was so excited georgia was going to cut this delta ta- delta airlines tax break or whatever uh and it passed the house it did not pass the senate and so delta airlines still has its tax break and very few people seem to have noticed. It's it's like yeah. the it's like the liberal misinformation tweet getting ten thousand retweets, and then the correction getting ten. Like yeah, and and this is what happened in South Dakota as well, right? You know, Christine Nome was supposed to be the great savior uh, of the right. You know, she was great on COVID lockdowns, all this stuff. Come to find out, actually, she was pushed by her state legislature to be good on COVID lockdowns. And when the rubber met the road on the policy for her, she backed down. Chamber of Commerce money needs to be not not
1: welcome in the same way that you know Google money is now not welcome. I mean, if if they're not gonna take seriously the fact that, you know, we're being boycotted and crushed politically and they're gonna eat it. You're still taking Chamber of Commerce money and saying, Whoa, 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 whoa. we can't we can't mess with Delta, even though they're taking sides in the, the a completely political fight. Yeah. Um, yeah, we
0: have to do something about that. So what are some of the, you know, you, you you had a sophisticated conception earlier about, you know, what what is kind of missing the point and what's actually the point on, on the tech regulation stuff. What are the tangible policy goals other than, you know, cutting some of these tax breaks that we should have when it comes to corporations? Is there some big fix, like a systemic fix that can be had for this question? <laughs> I mean, that's
1: I still haven't figured that one out. That's, you know, I, I need to give that one more thought. But I, I do want to actually actively be willing to use government to punish some of these industries Mm -hmm. if they're if they're not going to play it straight then okay right like i don't know how to make it any clearer to you i don't think boycotts really work very well yeah on our side especially where you know the right is sort of iffy on boycotts although we you know nba viewership is down it'd be good if mlb viewership went down this year all that would be fine um but i think you know states should be you know oh you want a new stadium that's funny (laughs) right hilarious uh oh you 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 want to open a new plant here oh well uh no tax breaks for that yeah um and just in general like maybe we need more investigations Mm -hmm. like that's what that's what you have a state attorney general for right like any any shenanigans with your taxes any shenanigans with your plants any shenanigans with your labor practices Mm -hmm. like maybe kansas and all those republican states should start investigating amazon um you know i think if they're gonna wield their soft power to to mess with us. We should be willing to use the instruments of power available to us to make them
0: realize they've made a huge mistake. Yeah, we should do politics. Yeah, we should do politics. Yeah. Um, it's It's been hilarious to watch over the past couple of days as the new libertarian argument is that, uh, you know, this is censorship, what the right's doing by by, by opposing these tax breaks from corporations oh. because of quote unquote speech they're making. You're doing censorship. which is just like- cancel culture. <laughs> no it's self-defense
1: literally the entire point is like don't boycott us yeah right the only like we're doing you started it like like libertarians of all people should understand this right libertarians are all like the initiation of force is the problem yeah you know like basically what libertarians are doing are looking at saying to the person who shot in self-defense and being like you're a violent person <laughs> like they would never do that but they're you know motivation right like seems like you know if a a government does it oh no 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 if a corporation does it oh yes yes yes
0: yeah corporate solicitude is is basically what i i actually have a soft spot in my heart for like regular voters who consider themselves you know liberty-minded people like they tend to be reasonable kind decent people and most of them hate the big tech stuff they're like this is terrible yeah like at a certain common sense level it makes sense to them right um it is only the over-ideologized, you know, DC yeah. libertarian that has a problem with these sort of ideas.
1: Yeah. I mean, in the same way that the over-ideologized libertarian is the one who's like, well, you know, private roads work. And, we <laughs> <laughs> and the normal person's just like, well, it's just so much. Just yeah. build the road. Mm-hmm. Just have government build the roads. Way simpler mm-hmm. than your solution. In the same way, like, oh, well, you know, we could do this private boycott and try and influence them. No, no, just make it illegal and punish them until they behave, Yeah,
0: you know. Yeah. Uh, going into, into 2024, I mean, you, you, you have, you have occasionally dabbled in election punditry. What, what is it that you're seeing uh, as, as potential bright spots, maybe even in 2022 as, as things to be looking forward to if you are similarly minded to us? Um, I mean, I think, you know, there were a lot of people who were were ideologically
1: aligned with us, but who couldn't stand Trump. Mm -hmm. Like that's just true. There were those people. I mean, and I know them because they're my parents. Um, these are Republican people who hate what the Democrats are doing. And, you know, generally agree with us. And then, but like my mom couldn't pull the lever for Trump. I don't even think my dad did. Um, they got tired. People just got tired of him in the same way that he generated a lot of people who loved him. There were just a lot of people really turned off by the guy. Okay. Well, it turns out he also reoriented the party to this much more popular and, you know, politically viable platform. What happens when we, if, when normal politicians suddenly are like, this is our platform now Mm -hmm. on our side. Because what the Democrats are doing is not popular. I'm sorry. Uh, wokeness is not popular. Yeah, You know, if if we get to the point where 50% plus one of the population wants wokeness, then we're screwed and we should all find better things to do with our time. I don't think they do. And I think we can win. Um, I think basically that the real bright spot is we have the more popular policy platform now. Mm-hmm. So the question is, can we execute?
0: Yeah, I, I do wonder about that. You know, it's not 50% plus one, obviously, but it does seem like there is an America where injecting a seven-year-old full of hormones is fine, and then there's an America where it's not. Yeah, and I, I guess, what's the path towards some sort of national consensus, if there is one at all? I mean, I know that there's been, you know, the, the our friends at Claremont got into a lot of trouble recently because they asked this question: is like, is that a reconcilable nation. How do you think about that? You know, do, do you think we're headed for a national divorce? Like what, where do you think the, the question of like the American nation as it currently stands is? Uh, I mean, I think we're extraordinarily split now. I think ultimately this gets
1: resolved with a sort of serious electoral defeat of one faction. Um, I think about my, my big analogy that I continue to use is labor in the 80s in Britain, right? They got beat up really bad by Margaret Thatcher in like three straight elections. Uh, and then they became new labor. And all of a sudden they could win elections again. Yeah. Um, we need to inflict It's one of the two things is going to happen. We're going to get defeats inflicted upon us that are so bad that we suddenly have to be half woke, mm-hmm. which would be horrible, yeah. I think. Um, but I think the more likely scenario is people. There's a massive backlash against the woke stuff. And we end up, I mean, we're about to get to redistricting in the house. We end up getting the house, the Senate. We have all these advantages in the legislature for that reason. And we get the presidency back and we win a couple elections in a row. Democrats will kind of be like, OK, these woke people need to yeah. go away, yeah.
0: I think. Well, I th- and if we do actually popular things with that uh, political control as opposed to, you know, tax cuts for corporations. Right. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, that's you kind of see that with labor, right? I mean, that's what happened to Corbyn. You know, Corbyn got 35 percent of the vote and all of a sudden the labor comes out and is like, nope, enough of that
0: socialism stuff. That's stupid. hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess as a final question, I- I'm just curious, you know, what do you make of the international side of this? I mean, there's similar movements that have emerged, you know, sovereigntist movements, you know, ones that are more willing to assert things like trade and immigration restriction. Do you think that there's something there as as sort of a global realignment of politics or or is that overstated? No, I I think there really is something there.
1: I mean, when you go to, you know, a, the national conservatism conference or whatever you, you meet a whole bunch of people who are internationally in agreement with you that their own nation should focus on their own interests first. It's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, like a nationalist international uh, is yeah. I think someone uh, Anna, Anna put it in Welles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think I'm, I'm very optimistic about it because there, there are a lot of people who kind of see the, the proper realignment because, you know, once you get realized, okay, libertarianism is just not that popular, but populist nationalism really is yeah. you know like a socially conservative economically moderate uh willing to use government power party is a very very popular thing then i mean you you start seeing like a lot of these parties spring up and do really well in elections and in some places take over and do great hungary poland um and in other places i think i think people are really going to get tired of neoliberalism you know even if boris johnson isn't fully nationalist he's at least somewhat he's very popular macron is not uh, I, th- I mean, I think the trend, the trend line is going to go in the right direction, and, and you know, as long as we, if we move to politicians advocating for populist nationalism, who don't have that same polarizing effect as Trump is, I think, I think we're going to start winning elections big. Name one that you think gets close. Uh, name one that I think gets close. Um, you know, oddly enough, and I know Pence isn't fully there, but Pence is a, will be a very formidable candidate in '24. He's not my ideal guy, but I think Pence running on populist nationalism would beat up on biden honestly interesting uh huge name recognition very competent vader very polished and le- learned the lines as as a as trump's vp i think he would be very formidable um i also i think desantis would be formidable too and i think obviously like i really like holly and Con, although i don't know that they have the name recognition to really get where they need to be but you know i mean imagine pence running on maga In 2024, maybe people are still furious that he didn't overturn the election results. But yeah,
0: by all accounts, he was about to be executed. (laughs) That was really dumb. Well, there's a lot of really dumb things out there. Mm -hmm. But thank you for coming on the podcast. will really appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to be here. On today's AmCannon Roundup, I wanted to talk about uh, a piece that we touched on briefly in the episode with Will that I highly recommend all of you read. It was a piece published at The American Mind in, I believe, 2019, and it was called For Real American Greatness, A Tech New Deal. Uh, it was co-signed by, among others, Ryan Williams, Matthew Peterson, James Poulos, Jim Antle, Rusty Reno, uh, Arthur Bloom, and and Will as well. And it really dives in deep on, on what we need to do in order to address the challenges of the digital age head on. Uh, conservatives tend to have a crisis of imagination when it comes to some of these pressing issues. We talked about that a lot During the episode with Will, you know, they're motivated to tinker around the edges with something like Section 230 or perhaps antitrust, when in reality, the digital era demands new legislation, new laws and new approaches to issues if we care about the substantive ends that conservatives should, which is things like family and sovereignty and liberty properly understood. This piece dives into a, setting the stage for what the paradigm shifts that are happening because of the digital era are, and then proposing some of the solutions that need to be met that are wholly conservative in their mindset. They may make libertarians a little bit upset, but they really are critical to ensuring that, that we have fully fledged out rights uh, as as political speakers uh, in American life, which is really what the founders intended with the First Amendment was a, a full spectrum right to political speech that would allow for liberty and representative government to thrive. So I highly recommend you check that out. That is on Amcanon, as is a lot of other stuff. We're updating Cannon every week. If you checked it out once when we launched and you thought you got all of it, I promise you you haven't. Uh, our executive producer and co-founder Jake is uh, hard at work adding new pieces every week we also put up features every two weeks. Uh we've done the, um uh we've done ones on personnel as policy, we've done one on supporting American families, on uh an, on justice properly understood and many more. So please check those out. Check out everything else we have at americanmoment.org and uh please make sure that you like and subscribe to this podcast on all platforms and share it with your friends. Uh I've been blown away running into people just in DC and elsewhere that listen to this podcast and enjoy it. And our listenership is much more than I expected. When you start a podcast, they lead you to believe that it's just going to be your mom and your sister maybe listening to it. And that's how a lot of podcasts start out. But we've been extraordinarily blessed to have a pretty wide listenership already. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out to us. And uh, we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.